a very strange world. It was in one of these moments of respite that we were pondering. I said to Nick that I was wondering if people were actually angry about the format change or if projection and transference had far more to do with it. Transference can feel like mystic mumbo jumbo, but it's a perfectly natural and common emotional response. We meet someone who reminds us, even subconsciously, of a loved grandma, a bad boss, the first teacher who really saw us, the first person who broke our heart. And we transfer emotion from the past onto the person in the present. Counter-transference is a lot stickier. As good therapists, we're meant to be aware of it, but rather like admitting you that quite like Shula, it's not something you say in public. Projection is much simpler. You take, again, unsubconsciously, subconsciously your feelings about something and put them onto something else. Put most simply, you hate yourself, so you project that hate onto those around you, insisting that they hate you, regardless of the reality of the situation. Think Kirsty struggling with her guilt, projecting onto others that they do not care about Kenzie, Jordan and Blake because she didn't care enough about them when she was with Philip. The transitional object is included here slightly tongue-in-cheek, but we all at times need our security blankets. I remember with crystal clarity the first monologue. I was in my kitchen after my daily exercise watching the sunset in the most glorious spring imaginable. As nature said, she did not care about our petty worries. As David spoke, I realised I was crying. Crying with a relief at the familiar, fear of the future, knowledge of what we had lost. Crying as I remembered sitting on my phone at 1am after finally getting an ASDA delivery, ordering food my child would be able to cook for themselves if I caught the virus and was too ill to leave my bed. Some of us couldn't avail ourselves of the Barnard Castle option. The monologue directly brought up such a tidal wave of emotions, positive and negative, that at times I found it hard to listen to them. But I was glad they were there, that somehow they showed me we could carry on, not as normal, but we could continue. Time, I am told, passed. Spring became summer and newspaper articles were produced about how terrible the monologues were. People talked of being let down, anger simmered, rows broke out in usually joyful groups, and the idea of the research kept being put off till next week. Forgive me for a short digression about the work of being a psychotherapist during a global pandemic. Pretty much the first rule of therapy, after learning to do the voice and the head tilt, you know, the, how does that make you feel, Elizabeth? is that you do not work with issues that are live for you. You must have processed your own issues. It makes you a better therapist. But whilst doing that processing, we must refer, refer, refer. Recently bereaved, refer on grief work. Getting a divorce, refer on people working out if they want a divorce. Living through a global pandemic, a lockdown, listening to client after client, talking about their fear, grief, rage, guilt, anger and sorrow. Well, I tried to contact the Therapists Association of Alpha Centauri, but they were on annual leave. This was the livest of live issues and there was no one to refer on to. So projects got shelved until I eventually, I realised my curiosity outweighed my exhaustion. I wanted to know what was going on. 
and so sent the survey out into the wild, waiting with, I hoped, a relatively open mind for the results to come in. It was a wide ranging survey intended to explore the following. What was causing the strong emotional response to the monologues? Projection, transference, something else, the monologues themselves. I had to accept maybe they really were that terrible and I was just an oddity and quite enjoying some of them. It, it turned out I had become curious just in time as limited interactions started appearing in mid-August. The survey was open for three weeks and 272 people responded. First, some demographics. I asked about length of time listening to the survey rather than age to see if there was any correlation between attachment to the show and sentiment towards the monologues, that transitional object we mentioned earlier. As we can see, we got a good spread of respondents with a small majority starting in the 70s, but new listeners also completing the survey. How people listened was revealing of just what a part of people's lives listening regularly played. Many of the respondents listened at two, seven and to the omnibus. This was a daily ritual for them. I could not help being reminded of daily prayers and mass times, fixtures which bring certainty into the pattern of our lives. It could be for some that this uncertainty and disruption within the greater disruption of lockdown was a step too far. I asked about gender, including a writing box. I do not think anyone who's attended conference or the Saturday omnibuses will be surprised at the dominance of women responding. But it was heartening to see that the Archers fandom is a gender diverse fandom with men, non-binary and genderqueer Archers fans completing the survey. If, just so you can see that sort of 82% were identified as female, just under 16% identified as male and the rest identified as some form of under the transgender umbrella. There we go. <coughs> Pardon me. The reason for asking this was simple. Loneliness is an issue in the modern world. It felt that conversation being replaced by monologue when all we have is our internal monologue was worth looking into. As we can see, the second largest group of respondents, just over 25%, lived alone. Loneliness has been identified by a number of studies as having a detrimental impact on mental health and well-being long before the pandemic. But those studies focusing on the lockdown showed just how big an impact loneliness was having on mental health, leading to the development of support bubbles where a single person could form households with one other household of any other size. So we have some idea of who responded and it seemed to be a diverse group. There are of course limitations to the sample size. I used social media, largely Twitter, Academic Archers and the old Dum De Dum group. Several kind people shared to other Archers Facebook groups. There are always limitations. With an actual budget, I would have included focus group and individual interviewing. Although the idea behind the open text writing boxes was to get some feeling for the themes and emotions of monologue to vote and be able to do sentiment analysis. We also need to be aware, of course, that this is a self-selecting group. Let's look at the results, or at least some of them. 
there's a massive data I'm still analyzing and I am going to put a link to the results for, to make it open access it at some point this morning. So dum dum dum. <coughs> Was change necessary? Only 62% of respondents thought the monologues had to happen, which fascinated me, as obviously it suggests they didn't believe the production team. Projection, transference, something else. This is where individual interviews and focus groups would have come into their own. But from the writing answers, themes emerged of other people managing it and a belief that technology could have solved the problems. This was particularly strong with 26% who were maybe in terms of did the archers have to change? 11% of respondents were clear. The monologues were unnecessary. I'd love to know why they thought they happened then and how that made them feel. Again, looking at that group's writing answers, themes of anger emerged a lot. It doesn't take the world's greatest psychologist to work out that if people think the change was unnecessary, they will be more ill-disposed towards the change. The next question is one I think many assume the, they know the answer to. Do you like the monologues? The no's at 35% is a large group, yes. But those who liked the monologues occasionally, sometimes, or simply answered, answered yes, made up two thirds of the respondents. Everyone hated the monologues? Not according to the data. What happens if we put these two questions together? belief in the necessity of change to the format and sentiment towards the monologues. So here, the green stands for, yes, you think they had, no, sorry. The green stands for, yes, you like the monologues, yellow, sometimes like the monologues, red occasionally, and blue for no, I dislike. And then the three questions on the bottom, do you think the archers had to change? Yes, no, maybe. This chart shows belief in the necessity of change and a very clear correlation between disliking the monologues and believing they were unnecessary. We are getting more of an insight perhaps into some of the anger and the strength of feeling on social media. It has to be said this was only some. As this chart shows, it was possible to dislike the monologues and believe they were necessary, but this wasn't a significant group. That's the yellows, sorry, yeah, that's here. I'm not a statistician, although I have a basic grasp absorbed in the student union bar of the LSE. I'm a psychotherapist and my training is to examine my own reaction to things. As the results started coming in, and especially once I started working with the data, I realized I was starting to make some assumptions about those who disliked the monologues and that they would not share my values. I need to step back from this. And this led to the next chart, timing of lockdown against sentiment towards the monologues. So here, um, purple stands for not liking the monologues and green for yes, and I've mislabeled. It's, that should be occasionally and sometimes in the red and yellow, but they were quite small groups on this chart. It's a tendency of humanity to ascribe shared values to those we deem to be like us. And natural, perhaps, to assume that those who like the archers shared our views about monologues, lockdowns, and lots of other things. So many people thought the lockdown was too late. 
that they had to reflect on how that might be impacting their emotional response to other changes, other figures of power and authority. It's slightly speculative, but I think it's worthwhile speculation to make. What this chart also shows very clearly is that those who oppose lockdown altogether disliked the monologues. There was not a single person who opposed lockdown and liked the monologues. They were a very small minority of the no's, though, and that really, would, I think, would have needed individual interviews to unpick further. The insight into my own in-group assumptions that people like me will share my values, beliefs and attitudes led me to consider how this might be happening within the listenership generally, especially those expressing the most violent dislike of the monologues. There are a number of things going on. Um, social projection is when we assume people will share similarities between ourselves and we perceive in-group homogeneity um, that we will all have the same stereotypical traits and beliefs. Looking at the work of Jimmy Tidy, which is the squeaky wheel here, Social network analysis shows how a few voices can drive the debate on Twitter, causing an apparent homogeneity of narrative when none exists, which when we look at social projection and in-group beliefs means that we can assume that we must all share the same narrative. To quote directly from Jimmy Tidy, this handful of highly active individuals have the power to shape perceptions and disseminate information. Tidy was speaking about taxi drivers opposing low traffic neighbourhoods, but could something similar have happened with monologues? Could there have been an assumption of a single narrative where none exists? A comparison of these two charts, sh charts shows there was much more diversity than might be assumed from the social media narrative, especially if we compare the belief in the success of the scriptwriters with success of the Westminster government. So this over here, we've got, almost got a smooth curve from how successful was the government at 10 through to 1, whereas how successful for the script writers, as we can see, there are a real range of beliefs and opinions. One of the questions I asked was for three words about lockdown and about monologues. I was looking for insight into emotional states for points of similarity and comparison, and again thinking about projection and transference if emotional states from the national event were being projected for, onto the Borchester event. So this slide shows three words used to describe lockdown with word size reflecting the frequency of the words. And to do this, I, I did kind of do some coding. So you know, dull and tedious all kind of got added up into boring. Um, and this slide is a word cloud of the words to describe the monologues. A lot of people are and were very bored in lockdown. And that's a feeling what seeps into different aspects of our lives, including perhaps listening to the world's longest running radio drama. If we look at both slides again, this is three words to describe lockdown. And this is three words to describe the monologues. There are some very similar words and some themes that definitely emerge, but there's also a huge breadth of different emotional responses to both monologues and lockdown. 
What we do not have is a single angry, look, monologues are terrible, or even lockdowns are terrible story that is being told. We don't have the narrative that seemed to dominate or the assumptions about the monologues made. I've just put a few quotes from the longer text answers people could give about the monologues, which for me really showed the diversity of responses. Early in the first lockdown, a quote about boats and storms got widely shared on social media. We are all in the same storm, but not in the same boat. The research is showing that we're all just trying to survive in our own little boats. Some of us in yachts, some of us clinging to a life raft. And while some voices may have dominated with regard to the monologues, in fact, the listener response was gloriously diverse and human. I take an intersectional stance towards identity, which means by which I mean we are all made up of different intersections of privilege and oppression. Perhaps in both how we responded to the monologues and whose narrative dominated, remembering that those intersections and power dynamics will always play out is the most important thing. Whose voices are heard and whose are not is, after all, the defining feature of a monologue. There's my contact details for anyone who wants them. And I can breathe now, thank you. <laughs> that was absolutely yeah. fantastic, Karen. Thank you so much. Claps, please, yeah. for Karen. I think you handled that so well because we talked about it quite a lot, didn't we, on, on Saturdays, that, you know, there was stuff in the House of Commons, Desmond Swain saying they're absolutely bloody awful, and quite a lot of people saying quite quietly, well, that, that's not my fandom, you know. I'm glad they keep in doing something. So I think it's really brilliant that you brought yeah. out because it isn't just the this the sort of construction of your own view. Obviously, as social beings, we're all responding all the time, and put, to pull out quite how diverse people's opinions were. And I think you're absolutely right that there was people were responding to more than just what were the archers doing in the slots that we expect mm -hmm. the archers. You know what I mean? People were but responding. It it wasn't as simple as, you know, I'm lonely, so I'm missing it. It, it really was about that. That's, it, it frightened me at first because the, I was trying to sort of do grounded theory, but there was no narrative. But yeah. that's, that, then it hit me one day, everyone was in their own boat. For yeah. some people, they were just so grateful. For other people, they were upset and angry and millions of little boats bobbing along. And I realized, yeah, that is the narrative. Yeah, and which and there is a and that, and I guess I mean you're absolutely right. That is the pandemic narrative. Yeah. It, it's one. In fact, it's the first thing Cara and I discussed when I got here. You know, people and your point about people that were locked down alone, people that were locked down with small children, people that were locked down in um, couples, or you know, we've, they've had a very different time, irrespective of what their work did or whatever. Because some people have never been so stretched, and some people have never been so lonely and bored. Mm -hmm. And that's, yeah, you bring all that together, absolutely. I mean, I just, I thought that was just absolutely yeah. fantastic. And it really sets the scene beautifully because it takes a social and cultural look at something that we all experienced and puts it into the pandemic context. So you really can't say fairer than that. I'm going to... Can I say one thing? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there was the usual um, Shula love-hate there, which was fantastic. Uh, always brings it out in the chat. But also, um, Leslie Wood, hats off to you. For essentially saving David 
David is all voice, no content. That is going on a tote bag. That's absolutely <laughs> fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> That's fantastic. Karen, if you don't mind, we won't go to questions just yet. Yeah, we'll we're totally over, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we'll have the second paper and then we will see where we land. But I think everybody knows, I mean, Karen's quite visible and is really happy to discuss this stuff, aren't you, Pet? Um, you know, one-on-one or later or take up correspondence. And I think it's a really important paper that in terms mm. of kind of the, the pivot that had to be achieved this year in the context yeah. of... So anyway, hooray for you, claps, claps, claps. I'm not quite sure how the um, Saturday morning it's group, Helen Burrows. Helen Burrows is the um, is the ringleader. So we look to Helen to unmute herself and share her screen if there are slides. I'm the ringleader. Uh, no, it's not me. It's not me this morning. It's Catherine. Oh, oh bless you. Okay, right. Oh, Catherine, darling, is it like two o'clock in the morning? You're amazing. <laughs> I just need to be able I'm just to making you a co-host, Catherine. Okay, thank you. And there'll you also go. be um, there'll also be Vic and Ruth, but I'll be sharing I'll be sharing the screen. Oh, great, the and they, well, they can unmute themselves at the right moment. So, paper number two, um, will will it's kind of they'll um, introduce themselves and explain what's what, but the title of the paper it's Saturday. It must be the Archers by fans for fans about fans. So take it away, Catherine. We are all very used to Sunday being an important day for the Archers Omnibus, but Saturday became important for many of us. Um, we have in the Saturday's Archers group about 30 people, uh, but so three people are presenting on behalf of the 30 people, me and Ruth and Vic. And I'm just about to show you a list of names and my apologies in advance if anybody has been missed or if any name is not quite right. So I'm only going to show the names for a very brief moment, just so that if there is an error, it doesn't get too highlighted. So we have a lot of contributors and it doesn't look as though I'm showing. And this is what some of us look like. Uh, and a big thank you to Sarah for taking the screenshot. Um, I think this was her third or fourth go to make sure that we were all smiling at the time. So what we're going to do is tell you a little bit about the Saturday group and then talk about community of practice and then talk about some of our reflections and how that relates to community of practice. So Cara and Nick very kindly started some formal sessions by Zoom between March and June of last year. It was a formal program that had a list of sessions. It was often a repeat of previous conference papers or an update of previous conference papers or new papers. And approximately 70 people went along. And then one day, Cara and Nick said, this is the end of the formal program. And people said, oh, oh, no. And so informally, people started to meet in July and we really had no idea where that was going to go. We had no idea that probably six to nine months later, we would still be meeting in that same way. And between July and November, between 15 to 33 people met every Saturday morning, sometimes to share presentations, sometimes to talk about things that they were doing at work. And sometimes it was just general chit chat. Cara and Nick very kindly brought the formal sessions back for November, December, and then the informal sessions began again. 
An email group has formed of about 33 people. And there is a weekly email with links to the group and what's going to happen. And we have also completed two projects by email. The first was a gift design. We wanted to thank Cara and Nick for everything they had done. And so some gifts were created. We know how much they like merch. So some special merch was created, especially for them. Helen Burroughs had created some knitting and we turned it into a mug. We also submitted an abstract for a book chapter and we have worked also on this and that abstract was used for this conference presentation. The group is open to anyone uh, and the email is also open to anyone as well. But I think we would also like to say a big thank you to Cara and Nick. Now, while people were attending the Saturday Arches, many of us were multitasking. Uh, some were baking, some regularly went running, some were knitting, some were creating other forms of crafts. But it was not uncommon for people to be multitasking and to, to show us some of the very, very creative things and colourful things that these people have done. Now, Ruth is going to explain what a community of practice is. So um, the term community of practice is relatively new, dates from the 1980s and 90s, and it relates to learning, how we learn, in relation with others, exchanging information, developing a perspective with others. So our Facebook group is a community of practice, and our Saturday group, and we're presenting this as a community of practice. And it relates to the social na nature of learning. So if we think about a baby learning anything, it's always in interaction and in situation. So we'd never sit down and say to a toddler, now I'm going to teach you your numbers. It's always in a situation. So we're going up the stairs and we say one, two, three, or we're drying their little toes etc. And um, if, if learning language, for example, those children who have suffered deprivation, like those who are wild children brought up by wolves and so on, one girl found in Siberia in the last 20 years, usually they don't have language. They, they, this girl barked, which was brought up by dogs. So the concept of community of practice has roots in the accounts of the social nature of learning, as in anthropology and social theory. A community of practice can be viewed as a simple social system and a complex social system can be viewed as made up of interrelated communities of practice. So you can see it's quite a broad term. And this is part of a broad framework for thinking about the social dimensions of learning. Slide, please. The community of practice locates learning in the relationship between the person and the world, which for human beings is a social person in a social world. So it's a relation of participation. And in this relation, the social and the individual constitute each other. It's related to social learning theory. Through sharing information and experiences within communities of practice, we can acquire practical knowledge um, from one another and thus develop both personally and professionally. 
So those are two key people, Leib and Wenger. So I'm now going to hand you over to Vic for the next slide. Thank you, Ruth. Uh, turning to our reflection now, which we have categorised as auto-ethnographic, which is the research and writing that seeks to describe and systematically analyse our personal experience in order to understand the cultural experience. So in essence, we are writing about ourselves. Group, we decided we would comment on our own understanding of the group via the SurveyMonkey platform. The platform was agreed between us as four questions on which the participants would be able to comment, and 18 of the 30 involved responded in this way. After ascertaining attendance, the four questions were, what does being part of the Saturday Academic Archers group mean to you? What role do the Saturday sessions play in your life? There was the topic of missing a session, as well as anything else as a freestyle option. Five members of the group volunteered to undertake a qualitative thematic analysis of the reflection, both independently and collectively, and looked to relate these reflections, the ones that were gathered, to the community of practice theory that Ruth has just run through. Next slide, please, Catherine. Thank you. Looking at the first question, the meaning of the Saturday sessions, what does being part of the Saturday Academic Archers group mean to you? The common motifs were being part of a group or community, the intellectual stimulation, we covered the archers, but also much, much more. There were many topics we ranged over from chit chat to more serious discussions. It's not surprising considering the times in which we were meeting. However, we did try to avoid negative topics and at times the chit chat did actually exceed the archers discussions. It was a forum for socialization, new friendships were forged, and an opportunity to catch up with old friends from within the academic archers community that had already existed from previous conferences, perhaps. There were reflections relating to helping deal with loneliness and carving out the essential me time. So it was clear that these sessions were a much needed opportunity to socialize over common interests, which frequently turned to wider topics, and that the group and the sessions themselves were important to a number of members. Next slide, please, Catherine. Thank you. We've included a couple of quotes here that illustrate some of these points. So, being part of a community with shared interests which has grown organically from the conferences. It is good to see, hear people who are perhaps more like friends now on Zoom. This is showing the strong community aspect and the making of friends from the regular attendance on the Saturday morning calls. Also, so much. During a time of uncertainty and worry, it was an oasis of intelligent, amusing people with a common interest. I had the chance to see conference papers I hadn't seen before, revisit some I had, and listen to and participate in fascinating discussions. This reflects on the learned aspect of the group and places it in the context of our formation and notes the impact of COVID time on our lives. Overall, the participants regarded being in the group as a highly valued and meaningful regular activity that supported learning, self-care and friendship. I'll now hand over to Catherine to continue. Many thanks. The role of the Saturday sessions, it was a very important part of routine, especially when it was during lockdown. Connecting with like-minded people who could also support and support on a number of different levels in a personal kind of way, but also in a very social way. And the sessions were anticipated. Many people came into the session saying, I've been looking forward to this for a couple of days, a couple of hours or week. There was one person who actually described the sessions as an escape an escape from part of their life that they just wanted to have time out from. 
what did missing the sessions mean to people? Well, some people prioritized the Saturday sessions over other commitments where they could. But missing a session for many people very much came under the fear of missing out. People did appreciate the flexibility that there was no expectation to attend, that you could come and go, that you could actually come and go during a session. You could arrive at the session, then leave early. You could arrive late, but you could also miss complete sessions. Although a couple of people did wonder how easy it was to return. And there was a concern that it might be a bit of a clique um, for there were a number of people who went every single week. And what was it like for people who were coming when they didn't come every week? For the formal sessions, recordings were a good backup. But for many people, they only missed sessions when there was a clash. And for people, they often didn't like missing sessions. And very recently, we all applauded when people were missing sessions because they had to go and get their vaccination. Both forms of session were appreciated. Both the formal sessions organized by Cara and Nick and the informal sessions. People said they liked having both. Uh, they were both described as informal and relaxed sessions, but for many social capital for future conferences, we are so looking forward to seeing each other in person when we're next able to meet in person and we feel we know each other a lot better. Inclusiveness was felt by many, uh, including the methods of communicating. There are so many different ways in which you could communicate through chat, through email, um, putting your hand up, all that, uh, all sorts of different ways. There was the academic perspective and also the history of the program. Not everybody in the group is academic and that didn't matter, it was great. Everyone had a different sort of perspective and those different perspectives coming together was a marvelous thing. Entertaining, fun and supportive were words used by many people uh, and some hope that there might be something like this that might continue, not necessarily weekly after lockdown. Ruth is going to explain how these themes relate to the theory, the community of practice theory. So the comments in the reflections, can you hear me? Yeah. The comments in the reflections show that people have experienced meaning making about the significance of what they've experienced in listening to a week's episode. So the listening has been individual, but the discussion has been participatory and communal. Sometimes the discussion is around personal motivation. Why did X character do this? What do other thinks about, think about when so-and-so said such and such? But sometimes it's been around issues. It's particularly the case evidently with the coercive control and the modern slavery themes. People have discussed and clarified their understanding through Saturday's discussions, in other words, co-constructed the meaning of what has been experienced. The fact that respondents commented on the openness, friendliness, camaraderie of the sessions endorses the participatory element. Next slide, please, as someone said, it's the theme of lockdown. Next slide, please. Uh, some of the comments clearly identify the learning that this participation has engendered. So, here are some of the comments. This has widened the scope of the academic and reflective perspectives of topics and issues arising from the storyline. It's provided social capital for conferences in the future. Uh, I have enjoyed learning from the academic perspective and about the history of the program because people go back into, delve back into their memories of when did that start or you know, had a lot of history. 
academic arches have, uh, sessions widen the scope of the issues raised during the arches through academic and reflective discussion. So our conclusion is, next slide, please. There you go. Our group is, our Archers COP, Community of Practice, is veritably, uh, veritably curious, generous, and joyful as we have experienced. Thank you. Thank you so much. Are you on mute? No, I'm. 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 Are you getting feedback? All right, I'll mute. You're definitely on mute. Okay, it's just because I can hear myself. Really weird. Sorry about that. It's not going to work. I think you need to talk. Hello. Really enjoyed that. Marvelous. Um, I think one thing that you don't, that doesn't ever enters your frame of reference is actually some of the personal characteristics of those expending their own social capital to keep the thing going. So Catherine, for example, if you were a more bossy type, I'm not sure you'd have found all the same, um, all, all those benefits lurking because you do draw people out in a very subtle way and you're not sort of demanding of people. And I think, you know, you thanked us about three or four times. I'd just like to thank you because you you made it that sort of space that people felt they could return to and then obviously you built it as a as a group collectively your norms you've kind of you know developed yourselves but I think a lot of that was because of kind of partly that you were kind of the, the sort of you know the, your brokerage style I would say so I'd, I'd like to just acknowledge that thank you very much I know it wasn't just you but you certainly were doing all the chasing around and the admin and all of that kind of destroys the joy for some people and someone, somebody said in the chat um, that it's different because if you, the reason, the reason that Cara and I stepped away was because so much screen time during the week on Zoom and on Teams, we, we couldn't um, appreciate, you couldn't, um, you know, enjoy it as part of our relaxation time because purely the technology had become just so sapping and exhausting because it's the sort of currency of our, uh, it's been the currency of our kind of day, you know, day to day. Um, and I wondered if, if people in, who persisted with the Saturday group were using Zoom as heavily um, during the week, discuss, and just, you know, just how fab it is that, that a bit of pandemic solidarity and a bit of kind of good social capital has been shared and how proud we are that, you know, it's been a really positive space for so many. So, I think um, I don't really have much more to say apart from well done, everybody. It's been lovely. Um, and I've been delighted that you've kind of been there for one another throughout this weirdness. So hooray for you. And I don't know if we want to go into questions on these, because if you re re really, if you would like to talk to the Saturday group, then kind of join in, I would imagine. I think the Saturday group would welcome that. I'm not quite sure what your plans are going forwards as we kind of ease lockdown, but they're the most is that is that the easiest way to kind of find out more. I would point you towards um, a session. So, so but despite ourselves and despite our goat being not being able to work an, an iPad with his hooves, we've come to a place of tea break of the tea break on the agenda. Can we all have some applause for some timekeeping? Oh yeah. <laughs> so. We've, I've actually got my cup of tea right here. 
we're so so there's no there's no new paper um for until quarter past 11 so um basically feel free to stay in the chat or stay on the zoom but there will and then so we're going to break in the program until we reconvene at quarter past 11 for the book session can i just really quickly say i've put a link to the um spreadsheets for the data if anyone wants to have a look at them but please be nice about my pivot tables because i did lots of really weird random ones trying to see what's <laughs> going to emerge but yeah oh, it's, it's just in the chat if you want to have a look excellent thank you very oh, much yeah. open data we're very much into um replicability of research findings at academic cultures very good you in fact you need that theoretics approval from the academic cultures ethics committee right see you in a bit get your cups of tea